from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, April 22nd. Today, the Biden nominee who wants to shake up Amazon. And a volcanic eruption meets a pandemic. morning, the Commerce, Science and Technology um, Transportation Committee will come to order. I want to... This week in the Senate, there was a nomination hearing held for Lena Khan. Maggie Penman is the executive producer of Post Reports. And recently, she's been reporting on Biden's nominee for the Federal Trade Commission, Lena Khan. I am deeply honored to have been nominated by President Biden to serve as a commissioner of the Federal Trade Commission. And I'm so grateful to my family, friends, colleagues, mentors, and students for their encouragement and support. Our tech reporter Kat Sikreski said this nomination was kind of surprising. Lena Khan is someone who's been very aligned with progressive Democrats. She's someone I would have expected, you know, Elizabeth Warren to have in her administration. The reason I got interested in this story is because of what it says about Biden's willingness to take on big tech and specifically Amazon. And I should say here, we're going to be talking about Amazon a lot. And its founder, Jeff Bezos, owns The Washington Post and a lot of other things, which is actually sort of germane to this discussion. (laughs) Well, so before we go on, tell me a little bit more about the Federal Trade Commission. Like, what is this agency? What is it in charge of? What does it do? Clearly something to do with Amazon. So the Federal Trade Commission, or FTC for short, is basically the regulatory body that makes sure companies aren't getting too big in a way that's bad for competition and consumers. It was started in 1915 with this mission of busting the trusts and basically ensuring our economy wasn't dominated by massive monopolies. In my mind, I feel like the the one kind of like big monopoly case that I remember was Microsoft when people were worried that Microsoft was getting too big and they called it a yes. monopoly. Was that like a Federal Trade Commission thing? Yeah, it's a little confusing, actually, because the Federal Trade Commission investigated Microsoft, but ultimately the Department of Justice was the one that sued them. So I'm, I'm very impressed <laughs> that you know that. By the way. <laughs> no, but yes. OK, this is actually a great example. So basically, the government said you know, Microsoft, you're not playing fair. You're making it too hard for people to use other software on Microsoft computers. Ultimately, they settled, but it was also just kind of like a PR disaster for them. I have some tape of Bill Gates's deposition, which was videotaped. Let me just play this for you. You understand uh, what is meant by non-Microsoft browsers, do you not, sir? No. You don't? Is that what you're telling me? You don't understand what that means? You have to be more specific with... Oh, Lordy. (laughs) Yeah. At one point, he actually asked the questioner to define definition. (laughs) So just to give you an idea of, like, how absurd this got. (laughs) Can I just ask, I I think one thing that has always sort of genuinely, not confused me, but, like, I'm not sure that I completely have understood... Why does the government care so much about a monopoly? Like, why does the government have an interest in making sure that 
companies that are very popular, that people clearly like and are giving a ton of money to, that that they don't get too big. The basic idea is that, like, when a company gets too big and too powerful, it can shut down the competition in a way that's really bad for consumers. So you can imagine a situation where, like, I have a monopoly on headphones and I'm the only headphone seller in town. And so I could just make my headphones as expensive as I want and I don't necessarily have to make them super great quality Mm -hmm. because I know, like, if you want headphones, you have to buy my headphones. What's interesting about Lena Khan is she sort of like goes even beyond this standard of like what is good or bad for consumers and argues there are other standards we need to consider when we're looking at whether these super big, powerful companies and specifically tech companies need to be regulated further or even broken up. So tell me more about Lena Khan. Like, who is she and how did she get to this moment? Yeah. So Lena Khan is a law professor at Columbia. She's really young. She was in law school just a few years ago in 2017 when she wrote this paper for the Yale Law Journal that sort of went viral or, you know, at least like law paper viral. She didn't want to talk to me for this story, but there are lots of interviews and clips of her online because of all the attention this paper got. So here's a clip of a tech writer talking about it at the Aspen Ideas Festival. And it causes this huge sensation. Everybody gets excited. It gets downloaded something like, I don't know, it was 160,000 times, uh, which excellent number for a law paper. Um, well, what did the paper say? So it was called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. And basically it argued that the way that we think about antitrust law has allowed Amazon to escape scrutiny for years. And so in order to explain this argument, I, I think I have to explain a little bit of antitrust law, and I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm ready. Okay, so the FTC is formed, you know, and they're like busting the trust. But then in the 70s, there was sort of this new wave of thinking. And you can kind of think of it as part of the like Reagan era conservatism, like trickle down economics. Essentially, the idea was that we should just be concerned with consumer welfare. And as long as things are cheap for consumers, we shouldn't really care how that happens. And so this way of thinking basically argued like antitrust needs to get out of the way of some of these big companies and let them grow and let them make things cheaper for consumers. And Amazon was a really interesting example because consumers love Amazon. Um, I think it's like the first or second most beloved institution in America, according to a survey last year. Right? You want a light bulb? Stuff is cheap. Light bulb goes out here, they get it to you and like, soon Amazon will give you the light bulb before the light even goes out. They are so efficient and so cheap. So the consumer welfare standard, as it's called, doesn't quite apply here, right? Because Amazon makes things super cheap. But one thing Lena Khan and other big tech critics have focused on is the fact that Amazon is both a platform and a manufacturer. So some critics argue there's sort of like an inherent conflict of interest there. Amazon runs a marketplace. Now, a lot of folks may not appreciate this, but when you purchase an item from Amazon, it is noise directly from Amazon. I talked to our tech reporter, Jake Green, about this. He covers Amazon for The Post. Sometimes there are third-party sellers on Amazon's marketplace that sell you everything from batteries to toothpastes to sneakers, right? And regulators are concerned that 
Amazon is making it more costly to run those third-party businesses and is also giving its own products and its own business an advantage over those third-party sellers. So Amazon basics, right? So like, you know, Amazon sells Duracell batteries, but they also make an Amazon basics version of batteries. And it's probably cheaper than Duracell. So you might be inclined to buy the Amazon basics version. Wait, can I just check that? Like, I'm going to just go into Amazon now and I'm going to get some AAA batteries and let's see what comes up. Yeah. So I'm seeing like the grid of the different types of batteries you can buy. And there are Duracell batteries and there are Energizer batteries, but the ones that are on the left and in the first spot and the quote unquote bestseller is the Amazon Basics batteries, which are apparently several dollars cheaper than the other leading batteries. You don't say. Amazing. (laughs) So basically, that's not like an accident that Amazon's batteries are both cheaper and also in the, like, premier spot in this, like, Amazon marketplace. Like, that is part of their business model and design to gear you toward the thing that is theirs and is probably most profitable to them. And so there's sort of this debate over whether that's okay, right? So what some people have said is that Amazon makes things really cheap for consumers. And the fact that they have their own batteries isn't a bad thing. I talked to Herb Hovenkamp. I'm the Dynan professor at the University of Pennsylvania, where I'm in the law school and in the Wharton business school. He considers himself a moderate, so not like the anti-Lena Khan, but like middle of the road kind of antitrust lawyer. Mm -hmm. And here's what he said about the whole Amazon basics thing. That's how competition drives prices down. It's it's the equivalent of selling house brands, for example, in grocery stores. They're cheaper. They give customers an extra option and they force the name brands to charge lower prices. That's, That's exactly what happens on Amazon. For example, if you want to buy Uh, AAA batteries. You can go on Amazon and you can buy Amazon Basics, which is Amazon's house brand, or you can buy Duracell, Rayovac, or some other uh, brand name. Duracell is owned by Berkshire Hathaway, which is an enormous company. Rayovac is owned by a very large company. And the the presence of Amazon Basics batteries on the website forces those companies to charge lower prices as well and gives customers a choice. And so, like, if I'm the customer, why should I have to pay more money for batteries? If Amazon can give me the best price on batteries and I can get them for $8.99 rather than $12.99, why should Amazon be punished for being able to give me the best price? And that is probably what Amazon would say, right? Like, They would say, we are competing with these other big companies and we're making batteries that are cheaper for our customers, and that's a good thing. But I talked to Sarah Miller, who is the executive director of the American Economic Liberties Project. She's another big tech critic along the same lines as Lena Khan. Here's what Sarah Miller said about the whole Amazon Basics batteries thing. Because of the data it can collect on what's popular, who's making it, and the influence it has over who is featured, you know, what third-party sellers are featured in the search results that you get. So not only can they see what's selling and then manufacture it and copy it, it happens all the time, (laughs) they can also push you way down in the results so that your product, your business essentially disappears. They can put you out of business overnight. 
Last year, when Jeff Bezos and other big tech CEOs testified on the Hill, there was this really emotional testimony from small business owners who basically said, you know, like my whole business model was making this one thing or selling this one kind of book. And then, you know, one day suddenly we were just pushed down in the search results or Amazon made a competitor that was cheaper. And it was like overnight, Amazon had taken away their livelihood. We were a top bookseller on Amazon.com and we worked day and night very hard towards growing our business and maintaining a five-star feedback rating. Most importantly, this business feeds a total of 14 people, which includes three children and one 90-year-old granny. And as we grew, we were shrinking Amazon's market share in the textbooks category. So now in retaliation, Amazon started restricting us from selling. They started with a few titles in early 2019, and within six months, Amazon systematically blocked us from selling the full textbook category. We haven't sold a single book from the past 10 months or probably more. Hmm. So what does Amazon say about this? Amazon didn't want to talk to me on the record for this story but they have talked publicly about a lot of these accusations. So last summer in those tech hearings, Jeff Bezos was actually asked if Amazon ever, you know, takes data from third-party sellers and uses it to create a competitor. So the implication was, you know, could Amazon see that AAA batteries are selling super well and go make a cheaper version of those? And he said there's a rule against it, but he really couldn't guarantee that it didn't happen. Uh, but I can't answer that question, yes or no. What I can tell you is we have a policy against using seller-specific data uh, to aid our private label business, uh, but I can't guarantee you that that policy has never been violated. Mr. Bezos, you're probably aware that an April 2020 report in the Wall Street Journal revealed that your company does access data on third-party sellers, both by reviewing data on popular individual sellers and products and by creating tiny product categories that allowed your company to categorically access detailed seller information in a supposedly aggregate category. Do you deny that report? Uh, I'm familiar with the Wall Street Journal article that you're talking about. And we continue to look into that very carefully. I'm not yet satisfied that we've gotten to the bottom of it, and we're going to keep looking at it. So then what do people like Lena Khan propose that we do to fix this problem? Lena Khan has written and said in the past that she thinks the government should consider forcing Amazon to break up these different parts of its business model. Yeah, I think it would basically, um, you know, prohibit Amazon from selling its own Amazon uh, labeled goods on its platform. Um, I think, you know, there's an open question about how it would potentially apply to other parts of its business. So if she were to be confirmed, are these plans that she would actually be putting in place? I mean, does that basically spell out that Amazon's days are numbered, at least in its current form? In a word, no. What big tech critics will say right now is it's great that Biden nominated Lena Khan, but, you know, if confirmed, she would be just one of five commissioners on the Federal Trade Commission eventually, and it's a bipartisan commission. So it remains to be seen what the FTC will actually be able to do. Uh, It is worth saying, I think, 
this is one of like the few bipartisan issues <laughs> right now in Washington where pretty much everyone is angry at the big tech companies. The FTC actually sued Facebook under Trump. And, you know, Republicans and Democrats might have different ways of approaching this and approaching Amazon in particular, but it's not like only Democrats are interested in regulating the big tech companies. One thing that was interesting, though, is when I talked to Jay Green, our Amazon reporter about this, he said, you know, this kind of government regulation tends to be slow. A little more than 20 years ago now, the federal government sued Microsoft for violating antitrust law. Uh, I'm old enough to actually have covered that case. And, you know, I would argue that in hindsight, the case took a lot of time and a lot of attention. But in the end, Microsoft ultimately settled with the federal government and maintained its power in some measure. It actually lost power as other companies out-innovated it in things like web search and mobile computing. But, you know, the government really didn't slow down Microsoft as much as its missteps really slowed itself down instead. Well, it also seems like Jay is suggesting that perhaps the biggest threat to companies like Amazon right now that are getting scrutiny from the FTC isn't necessarily even the FTC or whatever like financial penalties the government might give to them, that it's the threat of being out-innovated or being not cool anymore. Like there was just a point where Microsoft became less cool and it became cooler to have other types of computers or other types of technology. And I wonder if that is also a risk for companies like Amazon, right? That like, yes, a ton of people use it, but also there is this growing sense that maybe people should not be uh, using this company in the ways that they do. And and maybe people decide that they don't want to use this thing anymore. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And Amazon right now is not only facing possible antitrust scrutiny, they're also facing a lot of bad press. And I think we've all read reporting, including from our own journalists here at The Post, about conditions for warehouse workers and Amazon drivers. And so maybe the biggest threat facing Amazon isn't Lena Khan. I think what big tech critics would say is that it can't just be left to antitrust law, and it can't just be left to consumer sentiment. Congress would also need to pass laws. And without additional regulation, there's only so much anyone can do about Amazon's dominance. Maggie Penman is the executive producer of Post Reports, and she reported and produced this story. It was edited by our senior producer, Rena Flores, with fact-checking help from Ariel Plotnik and Emma Talkoff. Special thanks to Rachel Lerman, Tony Rahm, and Mark Seibel. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. 
Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. And now, one more thing. On the morning of April 9th, there was a violent explosion when the volcano on St. Vincent erupted for the first time since 1979. Anthony Fayola is the South America and Caribbean bureau chief for The Post. He's been following the aftermath of the eruption on St. Vincent. What you saw was an explosion of, of hot gas and sulfuric ash. The long dormant La Soufre volcano oh erupting God. Friday. Oh my goodness. Spouting columns of smoke and ash more than six miles skyward. That went three miles high into the atmosphere and then continued to drift off east uh, over Barbados and frankly, you know, drifting across the Atlantic now. Holy, it really erupted. My God. People are describing massive bursts of noise. There have been repeated eruptions since the initial one. And what they report are basically the skies filled with ash. The sun gets blocked out. I mean, we spoke to some people, for instance, who were quite away on the southern side of the island, and they were startled by the, the massive booms that were emitting from the volcano. So basically, it, it must be terrifying. I mean, it must be terrifying to be living in the shadow of that and to be trying to survive in the shadow of that after you've evacuated onto other parts of the island. What you saw was an emergency operation that was launched to try to evacuate people. Thousands evacuating as ash rains down on the island of St. Vincent. Four cruise ships rushing in to help take people to safety. They're moving people from the red zones in the north where the volcano is located down to the, the safer areas, the green zones that are in the, the south of the island. And it's that area, those areas in the green zone where you have 89 shelters set up, where you have thousands of people also hold up with friends and relatives, where the government is having its command center and basically having the UN in there also helping to coordinate some of the rescue operations and some of the decontamination efforts for the water supply. The Prime Minister of St. Vincent, thankful for help from neighbouring islands, today saying we are one Caribbean family. And many island countries in the region have been offering to house evacuees, but those offers have only been good for those citizens that have been vaccinated. And only about 11% of St. Vincent had been vaccinated as of early April. What we're hearing is that a lot of the evacuees want to stay on their home islands, but it really does show you how constraining the pandemic can be in the middle of a disaster. In disaster situations, you often have many people crowded, not only in transport, but once you arrive at your destination and you're being put up in shelters, the government is trying to do what it can, from what we understand, to roll out additional vaccines. 
One of the issues that has come to light because of this is the fact that the Caribbean region is one of these regions that in some ways we see as a third border for the United States. But nevertheless, you still see fairly low levels on some countries of vaccinations taking place. You know, we know St. Vincent has received donations of vaccines from India, but they've had a real challenge trying to source additional vaccines. And they had been hoping very much that they'd get a stronger response from the United States. And in some of these countries are pretty disappointed that they haven't seen that bigger response. You're going to need most likely additional funds for larger scale cleanup operations and anti-contamination efforts of the water supply. You're going to need to also establish ways in which people can begin to restart their livelihoods. I think that the problem that they're facing is that, again, it, it is not just a matter of coming back from a natural disaster. It, it's a problem of also rebuilding in the aftermath of the pandemic. Uh, and I think it's going to add just an extra layer of complication to their lives and their ability to, to try to recover. It, it, you know, you could easily see this setting the country back, not just by months, but even years. Anthony Fayola is the South America and Caribbean bureau chief for The Post. Sabi Robinson produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Muhammad and Rena Flores. Catch up on recent episodes by going to our show archive at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.